We're continuing a series on the question of is it a sin? We've looked at a couple of concepts of is it a sin to drink and is it a sin to dance? We're going to look at a number of things before we're through, such as is homosexuality a sin? Is wearing short attire, is gambling a sin? We want to continue our study this evening by asking the question, is it a sin to engage in premarital sexual relationships? Most in this audience would, uh, in fact, probably 100% in this audience would answer that question correctly and know the answer to that. But why do we need to talk about that? We'll answer that particular question uh, further in our study. As we have each time, we want to raise the question, what constitutes sin? How do I know that something is sinful? Sin is a violation of God's law. We notice that in 1 John chapter 3 and in verse 4. So if God's law is violated, that constitutes sin, whether or not that sin is specifically stated. Now this sin that we're talking about this evening is specifically stated. There may be other principles that would condemn it that are not specific. But this one is, but there are going to be a number of things we'll talk about in the series that are not specifically stated, and we'll come back to that principle a little bit later. As we talk about this sin, I want to suggest to you that we're dealing with something that's nothing new. This is not a problem for 2023, and it's just a new problem for us, you know that. We don't read very far in the Old Testament until we come to the case of Shechem and Dinah, Chapter 34 of the book of Genesis. Four chapters later, we see the case of Judah and Tamar, and things have not improved since. So consequently, we're dealing with a very old problem. So common was the sin. You've heard this quote before. Demosthenes said, we keep mistresses for our pleasure, concubines for our constant attendance, and wives to bear us legitimate children and to be our faithful housekeepers. That's the Greek view of this premarital, extramarital relationship, it was something very common. You've heard before that at the city, in the city of Corinth, that a thousand prostitutes served daily at the temple of Aphrodite. Now that's an astounding number. Let each one of those dots before you represent um, a prostitute, and if you can imagine going to the temple of Aphrodite, and suppose that's even exaggerated, and only half of those would be there, 500 prostitutes serving every day. That's how common fornication was in the city of Corinth. To speak of a Corinthian girl was to speak of a prostitute. Didn't have reference to the fact that she was from Corinth, but she was indeed a prostitute. Even in our own day, and these numbers go back just a few years, but 25%, one study shows 25% of the girls and 30% of the boys have sex by the age of 15. 21% of ninth graders have slept with four or more partners. 50% of 17-year-olds have had sex, and 80% of the teens have had sex by the age of 19. Another study revealed that almost half of the high school students nationwide, about 62% of the students in the 12th grade have had sexual relationships. Those numbers indeed are astounding, even if they are exaggerated. Another study sh showed that 52% of American women have had sex by, before turning 18, and 75% have had sex before they get married. Again, those numbers have not improved. And so we're talking about a very common problem in our society. So if our children are raised in public schools, they're going to school with, let's just make that a little more conservative number, that 50% of the students they go to school with, generally, 
are those that think that premarital relationships are okay. Nothing wrong with that and are probably guilty of the same. Our focal point is going to be on premarital, but I do want to include some things with reference to extramarital relationships. That's not uncommon in our society. Some estimate a high percent, uh, 60 percent of men and 40 percent of women have extramarital affairs. A more conservative number would be 24 percent of men and 14 percent of women have that relationship outside the realm of marriage. Different studies show different numbers. 75% of men who admit to having sexual fantasies about a co-worker, and 50% of them carry that out. 60% begin in the workplace or on the internet. What I'm trying to suggest to you is that we're having problems time and time and time again in our society over this premarital, extramarital relationships. We're going to raise a number of questions. Let's start with this one. What are we talking about when we talk about premarital relationships or the extramarital relationship. Let's take some biblical terms and define them. We're going to look at a number of passages that talk about the sin of fornication, pornea. We're going to talk about fornication. Thayer says that that refers to properly of illicit sexual intercourse in general. It's a broader term than adultery. The term adultery, Thayer says, it means to have unlawful intercourse with another's wife. So as defined by Thayer, Bedag would say the same thing, Vine would say the same thing, fornication is that broader term that includes both of what we think of as premarital and extramarital relationships, where adultery seems to be more specific a term that is included in the concept of fornication. Those terms are used interchangeably. What we would think of as premarital relationships can be called adultery in the New Testament. And then what we think of as extramarital relationships might be called fornication, like in Matthew 19 and in verse 9. So we're talking about both premarital and extramarital relationships. The second question we want to raise is why is it wrong? Our question that we're looking at is, is it a sin? Why is that wrong? Well, we're going to look at a Bible answer to that question, and let's go to the Old Testament and talk about God's view in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it was forbidden. You shall not commit adultery. That's pretty simple, that's pretty straightforward, that here it was simply forbidden, you shall not commit adultery. And so that's pretty simple. But furthermore, the Bible tells us, God's view in the Old Testament, that it was punishable by death. That if one lies with another, man lies with a woman, that both the adulterer and the adulteress should be stoned to death. Leviticus chapter 20 and in verse 10. So it was a sin God viewed as worthy of capital punishment in the Old Testament. It was described in Job 31. This is Job's declaration of his innocence. Talking about I have not committed this sin, I've not committed that sin, and I've not committed this sin. I'm innocent of the charge that I'm a, I'm a man guilty of sin. And he talked about adultery and he called it a heinous crime. He called it wickedness. And so it is a heinous crime. That was God's view in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, God's view of premarital and extramarital relationships, God viewed it as indeed forbidden and punishable by death. Well, is it any different when we come to the New Testament? Well, in the New Testament, we see that it's a sin that will keep one out of heaven. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul wrote to those at Corinth talking about their lifestyle before they become children of God. And he said, do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? In other words, the right, unrighteous are not going to heaven. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. None of those are going to inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. 
but you changed, in other words, verse 11. So 1 Corinthians 11 says that you can't go to heaven. Galatians chapter 5 talks about the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. And he mentions fornication and adultery, and those who do such shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, we see the same principle in 1 Thessalonians 4 and in verse 3. We're going to come back to that passage a little bit later. So we're seeing in the Old Testament, God had a very strong view against premarital and extramarital relationships. In the New Testament, God said, it'll keep you out of heaven. I want you to notice with me Hebrews 13 and in verse 4. Marriage is honorable and the bed undefiled, but the fornicator and the adulterer God will judge. So what is it that's wrong? What's wrong is not the sexual relationship itself, it's when it's before or outside the realm of marriage. So let's be a little more specific in Hebrews chapter 13 and in verse 4. When he says the bed is undefiled, he's talking about that intimate relationship we're describing. And he said marriage is honorable and the bed undefiled. That means that relationship within marriage is honorable and it's pure and it's holy. So here in that relationship of marriage, God views it as honorable and undefiled. But if it's before marriage, that's called fornication. God will condemn that. God will judge. If it's outside the realm of marriage, that's called adultery and God will condemn so this passage deals with the relationship, the intimate relationship in three areas, before marriage, in marriage, and outside of marriage. So God will condemn two of those, and one of those God views as indeed honorable. Then we raise the question, what is the value of reminders like this? This lesson is going to be a reminder. There's not a person present who's learning for the first time in your life that fornication and adultery are wrong and sinful. This is not going to be a startling revelation for you. So what value is there in a reminder that fornication is a sin? You may be like I was when I first started preaching. What do I need? Why do I need to preach on drunkenness? Because this crowd knows it's wrong. Why do I need to preach on stealing? Because everybody knows stealing is wrong. Why do I need to preach on fornication? There's not a person in the crowd that doesn't know it's sinful. I need to preach on something they don't know. Well, what it might do is it might help someone avoid the sin. That is a reminder may help someone in the future, you know, think, you know what, I remember something about it's a heinous crime, a wickedness and sin against God. I remember what Joseph did. I remember the prohibition of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In fact, you remember how that Joseph said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Somewhere he had learned it was wrong. Someone had taught him that it was wrong. Someone had told him it was a heinous crime. And he was reminded of that and that prevented the sin in his life. You've heard this story before, and I want to relate it again because I think it's worth telling. A number of years ago, there was a survey made across the nation among colleges about the percentage of the students that committed the sin of fornication. I don't remember the numbers, but it was startling the numbers of those that committed the sin of premarital relationships. So some of those, and I put this in quotations, that operated the Christian colleges among churches of Christ decided they'd make a similar survey because they wondered, was that number less? And it was. Then they were interested in knowing why is it less among those in these so-called Christian colleges? What's the reason you don't commit sin of fornication? And so the answers were varied. Some of the answers were they were afraid of venereal disease. So when I said our parents drilled it in our heads in the home, Someone else said that they, it was their, the friends they ran with. Various reasons were given. Number one answer. Number one answer. Surprising. 
was pulpit preaching and teaching against the sin. Surprising answer. So if we can spend a little bit of time tonight, and maybe there's some young person who a year from now, 10 years from now, whatever number of years from now, they're in a moment of temptation, and something we said here tonight prevents them from committing the sin, our time is well spent. That we can prevent the sin. That's why we need a reminder. So now I know what it is, and I know why it's wrong. Let's talk about where it leads. The Bible spends a great deal of time talking about not only that it's sinful, but talks about where this sin leads and what leads to this sin. So let's talk about some of that. What happens? Where does it lead? What if I commit this sin? What am I doing? What problems am I creating? Not only am I sinning against God, but what's going on here? Well, first of all, it perverts the body. It perverts the body. In other words, God designed the body to be used as he so designed, and this is a perversion of the body. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Let me stop and talk about the context and then we'll continue reading. The context is dealing with this sin of premarital relationships. In fact, let's get ahead of ourselves to verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. The King James says flee fornication. Run from it. There seemed to be some at Corinth who made the argument that, you know what, just as the body is to be satisfied when it's hungry, you satisfy it with food. When we have the desires, then we satisfy it with fornication. Why not? They come from a society wherein that was done. A temple at the temple of Aphrodite, a thousand prostitutes were there. And so Paul's argument is this is a perversion against the body. Now notice what he says at verse 13, food for the stomach and stomach for the foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Your body wasn't created to satisfy itself with sexual immorality. It was created for the Lord. Now look at verse 14, God, or verse 15, do you not know that you're members of the body of Christ? And shall I then take the member of, the, uh, of members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Now notice down at verse 18, flee sexual immorality, every sin that a man does is outside, uh, is outside the body. He who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. That's what I want you to see. It's perverting the use of the body. It's not using the body as God designed it, it's a perversion of the body. What else does it do? It destroys one's reputation and their respect for themselves. Now let's go to Job 31. One who commits the sin of fornication destroys his own self-worth and his view of himself. He destroys his reputation, but he also destroys his respect for himself. Notice what Job said, that if he had committed the sin, he said, I didn't do it, but if I had, he said, that would be a fire that consumes to destruction. Job said, this sin of extramarital or premarital relationship is a fire that consumes. That's what it would have done to me. Now let's go to Proverbs 6. And as you're turning to Proverbs 6, let me remind you that Proverbs chapters 5, 6, and 7 are a unit of chapters that go together dealing with the sin of premarital and extramarital relationships. And so we'll talk about those three chapters time and again. So in that context of warning the young man against the harlot, look at verse 27. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? In other words, there's consequence to the sin. Can, can you grab fire and bring it up to yourself and, and say, well, it doesn't burn me? No, it's going to burn you. There's consequence. That's the point. Look at verse 33. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding 
That's verse 32, and he destroys his own soul. Verse 33, now, wounds and dishonor will he get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. There was a young lady who wrote and said, having premarital sex was the most horrifying experience of my life. It wasn't at all the emotionally satisfying experience the world had deceived me into believing. I felt as if my insides were being exposed and my heart was left unattended. I know that God has forgiven me of the, the haunting sin, but I also know that I can never have my virginity back. I dread the day that I have to tell the man that I truly love and wish to marry that he is not the only one, though I wish he were. I've stained my life, a stain that will never come out. She understood the principle of Proverbs chapter 6. Here's another young lady who said, if I could have read Josh McDowell's article, Helping Teens Say No to Sex, when I was a teenager, perhaps I would not have given in so many times back then. Even after I became a Christian and you, God forbade, premarital sex, the old habit was hard to break. Now I am a wife and a mother and, and am still haunted by my past. It hurts to realize that the most precious gift I could have given my husband on our wedding day, a pure wife, is not possible. David said, you remember this, though embracing forgiveness, he said, my sin is ever before me. There's something about that sin that just stayed with him and he couldn't let go. My sin is ever before me. It haunted him. Where does it lead? It leads to perverting the body, to destroying your reputation, your respect for self, and it mistreats others. I said Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. Let's go back to chapter 5, if you will. And notice in chapter 5 and verse 9, Speaking of giving yourself to the harlot, you give your years to the cruel one. The one that is having this illicit relationship with you is described as being a cruel one. So it mistreats others. When you're having a, an unlawful relationship with someone else, it is being cruel to them. Here's something else. It creates jealousy. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 6. Go to the sixth chapter of Proverbs. I said these three chapters go hand in hand. Look at verse 34 and 35. For a husband, for jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. Oh, when a husband finds out she's committed the sin, his, his jealousy rages. Look at verse 35. He will accept no recompense, nor can you appease him with many gifts. There's nothing you can do to buy him off. Not going to work. Furthermore, what does it do? It destroys a marriage. That is the one reason God gives for ending that marriage relationship, except it be for fornication. If one marries another, they commit adultery. It hinders our worship. If a man mistreating his wife by not honoring her as the weaker vessel destroys his relationship with God, described as hindering his prayers, how much more would the, sin, the heinous sin of adultery do the same thing? Colossians 3 says it stirs the wrath of God. God's angered and God is stirred. 1 Corinthians 5 tells us it brings disfellowship. The man at Corinth was having fornication with his, mother's, uh, his father's wife and the church was to discipline him and they were to withdraw from him. It can bring disfellowship. Furthermore, it breeds other sins. We're coming back to 2 Samuel 11. This is the case of David when he committed the sin with Bathsheba. That led, that sin led to him being deceptive and even up to the murder of Uriah. That is, he's trying to cover his sin. If one will commit the sin of adultery, they'll commit another sin. They'll try to cover that sin, be it lying or anything else. And ultimately, what it does is it sends one to hell. Revelation 21 in verse 8, those that will have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone among those are fornicators and adulterers. 
So where does it lead? It's not just a matter. We've had this relationship. We shouldn't have, so we'll ask God to forgive us. We can do that, but it perverts the body, destroys your reputation, it mistreats others, creates jealousy, destroys the marriage, hinders your relationship with God, breeds other sins, and ultimately sends you to hell. Now what leads to the sin? I said the Bible spends a great deal of time talking about where it's headed, what it does to you, but it also talks about what led to that sin. How does it, how is this come about? How could one who knows better, has been taught better, raised better, end up committing this sin? The Bible gives us some answers to that. Perhaps you've known of people that have committed the sin. You think, I don't see how they did it. They know better. They've been in Bible class. They sit through sermons. How could they do that? The Bible gives us some insight to that. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 2. And if you're so disposed to underline and mark things in your Bible, this would be a good passage for you to mark. Maybe make a marginal note. How could one, particularly, let's talk about an extramarital relationship. How could someone that's married and supposed to be a Christian, we thought of them as being faithful, how could they ever commit the sin of adultery? How could that happen? In every case, two things have happened. They forget the covenant with their God and they forget the covenant with their mate. Let's go to Proverbs 2.17, see what it says. The text says, speaking of the harlot, she is supposed to be married because she talks about, the passage mentions the companion of her youth. She's supposed to be in a relationship with God, talks about the covenant with her God. So what happens to her? How could she be engaged in harlotry when she's supposed to be in a relationship with God in a relationship with her husband? The text says, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. See how it happens, they forget a covenant. They first of all forget a covenant with God. What does that mean? Their faith gets weaker. There may be an exception somewhere, but I doubt there is. When you find someone who's supposed to be a faithful Christian and they commit the sin of adultery, it's because their faith got weaker. You say, how do you know that? Well, one, this text tells me, and secondly, those with strong faith don't do that. I can't imagine saying, you know what, their faith though was strong. Their faith never, never wavered. Their faith got stronger and they committed the sin. No, they commit the sin because their faith got weaker. Maybe it begins slacking off just a little bit in their spirituality, but their faith deteriorates. Their faith gets weaker. Secondly, they forget the covenant of their God and the, com the covenant or the companion of their youth. The marriage deteriorates. The marriage deteriorates. The marriage begins to falter. It begins to crumble and come apart. They may not know how it's coming apart. So show me someone that's married and then they commit the sin of adultery. Two things have happened to them if they were supposed to be faithful to God. That is, their faith got weaker and their marriage deteriorates. You say, how do you know that second is true? Because one, this text tells me, and those with great marriages don't do that. I can't imagine saying their, their marriage was at the best. Their marriage was stronger than it's ever been. And yet they committed the sin. I can't imagine that. And so if you're looking at your marriage, you say, my, is my faith getting weaker? Yeah, I'm seeing that. And yeah, I see the marriage deteriorating. You may be in danger of committing the sin. That's how it happens. That's what leads to that. Here's something else. Being careless. Now let's go back to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and talk about the case of David and his sin with Bathsheba. And talk about his carelessness. What I want you to see is that beginning at verse 2, it happened that one evening David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. 
But David may not could help that he saw the woman bathing. But let's see what else he does. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. He kept looking. He carelessly gazed and continued to gaze upon her. Were David not careless with his eyes, he might not have been inquiring about her. Now notice in verse 3, he gets even more careless. The text says that David sent and inquired of the woman. I want to know who she is. I've been watching this woman. She's bathing down there. I'm seeing her and I want to know about her. I want to know who she is. Being very careless about that. Notice in verse 4, he sent messengers and he took her. Maybe she brought her up there to him. He's being very careless. The next thing that happens is he lays with her. That would have never happened had David not been as careless as he was. That's just a sampling of that kind of principle. Let's go to another passage. I said Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. Let's go to Proverbs 5 and in verse 8. It says, remove your way from her and do not go near the door of her house. This is the warning to the young man. Don't commit the sin of adultery. And one of the ways to avoid that is don't go hanging around her house. Don't be careless. Don't see how much time you can spend with her without committing the sin. Do not go near the door of her house. Stay clear of her. Stay away from that tempting circumstance. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 7. We won't spend much time there because we're going to come back a little bit later, beginning at verse 6. There's this carelessness on the part of both parties. One is there is this, the attire of a harlot. Maybe she's not being careless. She's being careful to attract his attention. And I put careful in a quotation there. But there is the attire of a harlot that's mentioned at verse 10, where she's trying to attract his attention. There's later at verse 21, he ignores, or at least he is not attuned to her enticing speech and her flattering tongue. And next thing you know, he is beginning to be interested in her. I'm just trying to illustrate the carelessness. While we're in Proverbs, let's go to chapter 6. You say, well, what leads to that? I don't understand how this happened. Forgetting the covenant with God and with your mate, being careless, and heeding the look of the eyes. Let's go to Proverbs 6 now. Uh, the sixth chapter of Proverbs, verses 24 and 25. To keep you from the evil woman and from the flattering tongue of the seductress, do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. She can say more with her eyes than she can with her tongue. The look of her eyes can say a thousand words of what she's thinking and what she wants you to think. And so when he's not attuned to that, he's, he's not heeding uh, the, the warning, but he's heeding the looks of her eyes. He's paying attention to the looks of her eyes. He then is going to yield. Let's go why, again, same context, Proverbs 6, 24 and 25, same verse. He listens to the flatter and the lies. That is, if the seductress is trying to seduce him, she's going to flatter him. Well, that's what she says. Keep you from the evil woman and from the flattering tongue of the seductor. She's going to tell him how, how great he is, how strong he is, how handsome he is, whether it's true or not. In fact, she's going to lie about some things. Look at chapter 7. Jump over to chapter 7 and in verse 15. She comes out to meet him in the street. And she says to him, I came out to meet you diligently to seek your face and I have found you. You know what she's saying? You're the only one for me. I wouldn't have anybody else. I've been looking for you. She's lying through her teeth because she's a harlot. If he had dismissed her, she's going to say the same thing to the next guy that comes along. Look at verse 21. With her enticing speech, she causes him to yield, and with her flattering tongue, she seduced him. How does it happen? He listens to the flatter. She listens to the flatter, 
and to the lies. Furthermore, how does it happen? It happens because we're, it's encouraged by society. The movies we watch, the television shows, the music we listen to, the books we read often encourage it. Analysis of broadcast media content indicate that on average teenage viewers see 143 incidents of sexual behavior on network television at, at prime time each week. Let that sink in. If the teenager is watching a lot of television, they're seeing 143 incidents of sexual behavior. Without reading the rest of the quote, most of those have to do with premarital and extramarital relationships. And furthermore, they present it in a positive light, not presenting any kind of risk and certainly not any kind of discussion of whether it's right or wrong, but encourages it as normal and okay. Let's go to Proverbs 7 again. We keep spending time in Proverbs chapter, chapter 7. I want you to notice verse 19. Finally, she or he looks for the opportunity. When one is tempted to sin and they're thinking about sinning and the temptation is strong, they start looking for the opportunity to commit that sin. Look at verse 19 of Proverbs 7. The woman comes out to him. This is the heart that comes out to the, to the young man and says, for my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. Took a bag of money with him and he'll come home at an appointed time. Do you see what, what she said? She said, we won't get caught. I know you've been, you've, been, you've been worried. I know you've been thinking my husband may catch us, but he's gone on a journey. He went off on a trip and he won't be back for two weeks. We won't get caught. The time is right. And so now they're looking for the opportunity. Well, finally, let's talk about what prevents that. I know what the sin is, the premarital relationship, extramarital for that matter. I know what it is, and I know why it's wrong, and I know where it leads, and I know what caused it, what led to that. So what can we do to prevent it? You say, um, I know it's sinful and I know it's wrong, but, but since it could be a thing that you could be carried away and wrapped up in as a premarital or extramarital for that matter, how can we prevent it? What do you do? You run from it. You flee. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 18 says, flee sexual immorality. Fleeing gives the idea of running from it as if, as one lexicographer su suggests, as from a poisonous adder. You run from it. Let it not be once named among you. Don't do that. Avoid that. Flee and run from that. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we're coming back to in a moment, says the same thing. Now let's go now to Genesis chapter 39. It's not the only passage we're going to consider, but I want to spend a little time in Genesis 39. And this is the case of Joseph in Genesis 39, who resisted Potiphar's wife when she tempted him and the text says that he refused her. And what did he do? Well, first of all, let's start with this. He said no. Look at verse 8. She came to him, verse, nine, verse 7, came to pass after this the master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph. There's that flirt, flirting with her eyes we talked about. Verse 7 says, and she said lie with me. She told him here's how far I'm willing to go with you. Now verse 8, you might underline. But he refused. That means he said, no. Then no, I'm not going to do that. Look at verse 10. So it was that as she spoke to Joseph day by day that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. He said, no. Now you can say no to someone 
with the tone that says, if you ask me again, it might be maybe next time, or it might be yes next time, but I don't think so right now. Or you can say no so emphatically that they understand no means no. Joseph refused. Here's something else Joseph did. Look at verse 8. He remembered someone trust him. He said, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has into my hand. In other words, my master, trust me. He's put everything under my control and trust me to handle everything, and I'm not going to betray the trust of my master. You need to remember somebody trusts you. It may be your parents trust you to be the right kind of person to behave yourself. Your husband trusts you. Your wife trusts you to behave yourself. Someone trusts you. Furthermore, look at verse 9. He remembered it was a sin. He didn't think, you know, everybody's doing it. I don't think I'll get caught. He was focusing on the fact that it was a sin. Look at verse, look at verse 9. He said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He wasn't focused on the danger of maybe she might become with child. He wasn't focused on the danger we might get caught. He said, this is a sin against God. Great wickedness. What else did he do? Look at verse 10 or verse 12. He ran, literally ran. Look at verse 12. She caught him by his garment saying, alive with me, but he left his garment in her hand and he fled and he ran outside. He's doing exactly what Proverbs 5 and verse 8 says. Do not go near the door of her house. Stay clear of her. He thought he needed to get away. It might mean that you have to literally run out of the apartment, run out of the house, get out of the car to flee for purity. Notice furthermore, I want you to notice in verses 10 and 11 that he watched his behavior around the opposite sex. This is, goes back to that carelessness we talked about. David didn't watch his behavior. He began to inquire, I want to bring her up here, I want to talk to her, I want to see who she is. Joseph, on the other hand, watched his behavior around the opposite sex. Here's something we often miss at verse 10. I want to start with verse 11, I want to go back to verse 10. That it happened about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was inside. In other words, there's no one else around. Prime opportunity for her to tempt him, and she did. Perhaps that's one reason he fled and ran outside. But go back to verse 10. So it was that she spoke to Joseph day by day that he did not heed her to lie with her. See the rest of the verse? You might underline it. Or to be with her. Joseph not only said, I'm not going to lie with you. He didn't want to be around her anymore. What's he doing? He's doing exactly what Proverbs 5 and verse 8. Do not go near the door of her house. He's going to stay away from her. He's going to watch his behavior. I don't need to be with somebody who's not my husband or my wife. I don't need to be with him alone. I don't need to be in here. I don't need to be just the two of us around. There needs, there needs to be somebody else around. I need to flee and run outside. I'm not going to be with her. I'm not going to do that. People may look at you strange when you say, I, I just don't think I want to be in this, this room, just me and this other person of the opposite sex. I don't want to do that. But i tell you what, it will not lead to immorality. It will certainly not lead to immorality. Look at verse 2 of chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. We're going to leave passage in Genesis for the moment. Get married. What does that mean? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and every woman have her own husband. The context dealt with it's better not to marry under the circumstance, but he said it's better to marry than to burn with desire. 
So in order to avoid fornication, it'd be better to get married and have that relationship within the marriage where it's honorable. So one of the answers that God gave to that, that was his answer, is to get married. Here's something else. Keep your thoughts pure. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 6. Let's go back there for a moment. Proverbs 6 and in verse 25. The text says, do not lust after her beauty in your heart. There's nothing wrong. I look and I'm, I'm, the thoughts go through my mind, but I would never commit the sin. Control your thoughts and that controls your body and that controls the sin of fornication. Now let's tie that and lace that, Proverbs 6, 25, where 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 5. Let's read the verses and then we'll see what what the text is saying. One of the things that Paul is saying is stop fornication before it ever happens. When you get to the point, you're almost committing the sin, it's too late. That's why it's not stopped. You back up a little bit and then you back up even a little more and stop the sin much earlier. Let's see what the text says. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Abstain from fornication. So what the text is saying is don't commit the sin of fornication. Now, if I say, well, I don't want to commit that sin, and when I think I'm just nearly to the point of committing that sin of a fornication adultery, I think I'll try to put the brakes on. It's too late. He tells me more. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel. That's his body. So how do I avoid the sin of fornication? The text says I do that by controlling my body. If you control your body, you'll not commit the sin of fornication. But if I then decide, you know what, I think I'm going to control my body. When I think it's getting out of hand, I'm waiting too late to put the brakes on. He says something else. Not in passions of lust. In other words, control your thinking. So the text is saying, here's how you avoid the sin of fornication is by controlling your body. The way you control your body is by controlling your thoughts. When you control your thoughts, your body's under control, and then therefore your fornication is not going to come. That's not going to be committed. And then last of all, may I suggest, be what you ought to be in your marriage. As 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 2 through 5 describes in that intimate relationship, and then it goes a long way from present, for preventing the sin of adultery and fornication. Well, that's not an exhaustive study of the sin of fornication and adultery, but our question is, is it a sin to engage in premarital sex? And the absolute answer is yes. We know what it is, we know why it's wrong, we know where it leads, we know what leads to that, and we know what can be done to prevent that sin. May God help us to maintain that purity. If we could just help one person who may not even realize in the future that it may be one of these lessons that helped. Doesn't matter if they remember who they heard it from or where, when they heard it. But if there's some message that was preached this evening that helps somebody in the future, our time indeed is well spent. It is indeed a sin. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?